Hello, I'm David Hardacre, and this is the Finzia podcast series on fintech, where digital disruption comes to financial services. We're exploring the big question. Will digital innovators kill the incumbents of banking and finance? Bill Gates was sure they would. Back in 1994, he dismissed retail banks as the dinosaurs of the 21st century. Well, it's 2016 and those dinosaurs are still with us. But Australia's banks and other financial institutions are having to deal with a real threat from digital innovators. One of Australia's leading venture capitalists specialising in fintechs is Ben Heap, and this is his prediction. It's somewhere between very likely and certain that in 10 years' time, there will be a large financial player that will be amongst the top echelon, the top five or six uh, financial services firms in Australia that doesn't exist today. Over the next six episodes, we'll be hearing from leading figures in Australia's growing fintech industry, from entrepreneurs big and small, and the people who are backing them. But for the big picture, let's go first to Kate Carruthers. I'm a person who spent a long time working in and around banking and finance in Australia and uh, overseas. And it's interesting to see them trying to work out what to do in response to the potential disruption. Kate Carruthers is Chief Data Officer at the University of New South Wales. Fintech's taking the traditional business models and breaking them apart and putting them together in new ways. And it'll be looking at ways of interacting that are not on the traditional model of a bank that does a certain set of products and services and provides basically a cradle-to-grave relationship. So, you know, traditional banks gave us our money boxes in kindy and a lot of us still have our mortgages with them and our insurance and, you know, we have that whole lifetime example and we don't... They're going to break that. They're going to break that? Yeah, they're going to break that. I've heard it said that the, the fintech revolution is, is eating finance bit by bit. It's the new tech ventures are are slowly eating what your bank or your financial advisor or your, or your mutual fund used to do. Is that the right way to characterise it, do you think? I often use the term nibbling away at it. They're not going to you know, kill a bank tomorrow, but they are going to take away market share and they're going to do it the same way that apps have taken away desktops market share. The convenience of being able to do a financial transaction or build a financial relationship on the device that's in your hand or your pocket while you're on the move starts to embed it into your everyday life and that's always been one of the challenges is how do you how do you actually embed yourself in the consumer's life journey as opposed to being a one-off purchase every you know, five years when you look at something like the newspaper industry digital disruption was almost digital destruction do you see the same potential against established financial institutions i do because every part of the business model of a bank can be subject to disruption. What about mortgages? Well, mortgages can be and are being disrupted. Uh, what about personal lending? Can be, is being disrupted. So all of the traditional retail banking services are being disrupted. I see the wholesale side of the banking business as a whole lot less subject to disruption by these up and coming players. So if it's real, what's the size of the threat? Macquarie's banking analysts have put a figure on that. It's $27 billion, or 30% of total industry revenue. 
Macquarie says the immediate threat is to the $9 billion payments market, with platforms such as the US-based PayPal targeting transactions via mobile devices. The next threat is to the bank's lending business, worth $18 billion, with players like Google and the Chinese e-commerce business Alibaba, businesses that understand their customers and their spending habits very well. So what of that $27 billion figure? Oh, it's probably a bit of an underestimation. And I think what, what, the, what they haven't accounted for is that this will actually grow the pie. Not So they'll take existing market share uh, and they'll do it piece by piece, but they'll also grow the pie because they'll be able to connect with people who might not want to deal with a bank, who don't particularly want to go to a bank. And what particular segments do you see as being most vulnerable? Oh, the youth. So millennials are pretty much people who don't have a relationship with a financial institution, don't feel an affinity with them, they don't talk their language, uh, they make them do things that are really alien to them, go to a really bad website, go to a branch. That, and that's the target that I think is going to grow the pie. And then it's the Gen X, Gen Y that are the target that will be then nibbled away piecemeal by the startups. So it's sounds like it's being driven by pure demographics in a way. The digital natives, they will drive the change. You're right. It's a demographic shift. And this lack of friction, removing of friction in the process, is the advantage for the fintech startups because banks and incumbent financial institutions have a lot of friction in their processes. And it's really hard for them and it's expensive for them to remove it. Whereas a startup comes with no baggage and it can remove friction from the word go with no uh, legacy debt. Uh, but it's really up to the to the banks and the incumbents as to how they respond and to how they look at their structure and culture in response to it. But what about that thing called trust? Arguably the greatest asset of institutions that have been around so long, your mum and dad and even your grandparents might have used them. Alex Scandura is the head of a new industry and government-backed fintech hub called Stone and Chalk. But there's various different forms of trust. There can be trust in that you're getting a fair deal. There can be trust in that your money's safe. And there could be trust that potentially the money you're depositing with the institution is being used for good purposes. One thing that I'm not really sure on, and I think consumers aren't really clear on yet, is do they still feel they're getting the right deal and the best deal um, from their banks? And that's probably, it's completely my gut feel, that's probably an area where a lot of these new players um, are going to start asking a lot of questions because potentially uh, credit's going to be available to people that weren't previously getting credit, people who were getting credit but paying an extremely high rate because of the perceived credit risk might be getting a much more competitive rate. And, you know, likewise, we've seen in the wealth management space some of the issues that we faced all around the world um, in terms of the difference between, you know, the focus on the, the broker's um, interest versus the client's interest, right? So that trust we've seen already heavily demolished. So I, I, I almost question, you know, um, how that trust is going to morph and how the consumer starts to perceive what that trust really means. I guess the argument's often made that, you know, the millennials <laughs> have, a, have a new concept of what is, what is and can be trusted. I guess what remains to be seen is if that actually pitches forward as they grow older, 
and perhaps have a different appreciation of what money is and trust. What I think is likely to happen is um, these new fintech startups and their propositions are going to have a relatively easy and seamless um, onboarding process. Their customer experience they're going to provide um, is likely to be much better than a lot of the incumbent organisations from around the world. So that stickiness through, um, I guess, that, that sense of, oh, no, you know, I don't want to go through that, is it worth it, isn't going to be there as much because it's actually going to be relatively easy to switch. Kate Carruthers. The issue of trust is an interesting one in relation to banks. People trust people like them, and so they will, we have a high propensity to buy when people like us tell us to buy things. And what will happen, because we're not talking about a monolithic banking relationship, we're talking about pieces of different parts of our financial life. So it won't be as high risk to the consumer. It won't be perceived as a, such a high risk to the consumer. I'll, I'll just do my super here. I'll just do my banking over here. I'll just do payments through my phone here. So they won't see it as a big issue. So if the mantra is change or die, how do the established institutions do that? Can they embrace a culture of innovation in an environment where even new ideas are quickly overtaken? Alex Scandura. Large organisations um, can't move at this pace because in many cases, their ability to have gotten to that point has been predicated on their ability to m mitigate risk. And banks are probably one of the best organisations in the world at minimising and mitigating risk. So inherently you've got a paradox such that what's currently your strength is also currently your weakness. Somehow they need to be able to operate the core of what their business is today and maintaining a lot of those strict disciplines around you know, risk control, allocation ratios and so forth. Whereas another part of the organisation almost need to be, needs to be completely unshackled from all those things and be as nimble, as fast moving, as risk taking as possible to experiment, to have the permission to experiment, to have the permission to try and fail and try again and to work with startups. It takes serious commitment to change the culture of an organisation, the culture and practices of an organisation and to move from a, a very structured hierarchical model to a free-flowing agile model means that a lot of permission has to be given by management uh, all the way down the food chain uh, and allow people to fail, to experiment, to do things in non-linear ways and to do things in ways that are possibly not as easy to measure as one might think. So with your knowledge, having worked in these, let's call them traditional financial institutions, do you think that it's in the DNA to allow that to happen? Oh no, uh, I think it's totally not in the DNA uh, of that to happen. Banks don't know how to incorporate the disruptive elements, even the ones that they build themselves into their business. Kate Carruthers points to Suncorp as one example of a bank that has succeeded in changing its culture. Yeah, Suncorp is a really interesting example. Under Patrick Snowball, they really decided that they wanted to broaden out what their product offerings were and how they did business. They adopted agile techniques and methodologies and they applied them uh, to the business and new product development. They were doing really innovative things before anyone else in Australia. They were doing hackathons internally ideas generation sessions and things like that and they were using that to deliver new product to market. It strikes me it's also very much about sharing, about 
communities of workers getting together? Is that, is that also a challenge to what you might call traditional culture? One of the big challenges we have in big organisations, especially corporate cultures, is getting people to collaborate across silos. And this fintech sort of startup approach is really bringing together different people from different disciplines in ways that, that's been difficult inside organisations. And sometimes that has to happen outside of the corporate structure. The turning point in the rise of the fintechs was probably the global financial crisis of 2007-2008. The GFC was a major blow to the credibility of financial institutions in the UK and America. And at the same time, there were advances in the technology to deliver digital disruption. So the times were right for new tech innovators to step up and take on the old. Fintech venture capitalist Ben Heap. It's, this is an interesting case study. The UK, going back about five or six years, realised that their economy was heavily exposed to the financial services sector. And they, more importantly, though, they saw that the next hit may well be from uh, fintech innovation causing disruption and under, under sort of undermining uh, what's a traditionally an enormous and powerful industry for the UK. I sense Australia has realised the same thing. We actually have to do things. In Australia, banks have been responding to the fintech threat either by buying out the new competition or by setting up their own accelerators and incubators. They're also putting money into startups to see what works. Sydney is now home to two new fintech hubs, co-working spaces where entrepreneurs can hothouse their ideas. One of the hubs is the creation of the financial establishment and government. The other operates independently of the old institutions and has sprung from a desire to take on the establishment. There are hundreds of fintech ventures in the making, all aiming to find a niche and looking for backing. Sydney is actually the financial hub for Australia. Uh, we have a lot of technology startups. We have a very healthy tech startup community in, in Sydney, and we have a very healthy financial sector in Sydney. It makes sense to do it here, and we'll see more uh, coming out. And a lot of the banks are also setting up their own innovation centres and things. We're also got telcos with their innovation centres here as well. Uh, and we'll see some interesting collaborations coming out between industry and the universities as well. What do you think the major barriers are to success? I mean, is it money in the end? For every startup, it's money. Uh, you know, a well-capitalised startup can do more than a poorly capitalised startup. And it's the capitalisation that will enable them to work their way through the regulatory maze that will be the challenge. And this is where potentially the model of being a satellite startup for a major institution may be the way to go because the institution will help clear the way for the startup. Kate, how hard will it be for startups, these fintechs, do you think, to, to break the stranglehold almost of, of, of incumbency which the banks enjoy? And also the, the, you know, the tight financial regulations that Australia has? First thing is that they will do things in a non-regulated space and they will be able to then start to build revenue and get traction and then they'll be able to have bigger fights. The bigger fights are about access to um, the things like the clearing systems, the bank exchange and consumer exchange clearing systems for, for payments and transfers. At the moment that's a really tight knit 
circle and very hard to get into. And the fintech startups are going to find it hard unless they become exceptionally well capitalised to fight against that incumbency. So how tough can it be for a fintech to compete head-on with the banks rather than just nibble at the edges? One man can answer that question. His name is Jost Stolman and he's the CEO of a company called Tyro Payments. Tyro is Australia's first fintech and the only tech company in the country to be given a full banking licence, a process which took more than a decade. Jost is probably one of the most determined human beings there is. The incumbents have joined forces against him in so many different ways that if he wasn't well capitalised and stubborn, he wouldn't have got there. Jost Stolman's titanic 11-year battle against the establishment next time round on Finzia Podcasts. Uh, it's a huge difficulty and I must confess that without the Reserve Bank's uh, active support all along the past, uh, I wouldn't be able to comment uh, here on the uh, subject. The first problem is that obviously the major banks see no reason why a new entrant should get access to the core banking system. Mm-hmm.